Old Testament reading is from Amos chapter 7. This is what God showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been, that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in His hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. And then the Lord said, Look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. And then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle readings from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance into the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading is about John the Baptist and Herod. It's a companion to uh, the reading that we just read from Amos. In the book of Amos, Amos is prophesying against uh, Jeroboam, the king of Israel. Jeroboam has set up a false center of worship in Bethel as an alternative to the center of worship in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where God's people are supposed to worship. Because Jeroboam is the king of Israel, which is now divided from Judah, he's scared that if people will go to Jerusalem to worship, that they'll abandon the kingdom of Israel and be loyal to Judah instead. So he sets up this false center of worship. Amos prophesies against that false center of worship. And then um, Jeroboam says, you know, or Amaziah, who's working for Jeroboam, says, get back and go to, go to Judah. It's all about politics. It's all about politics. And this is often where your Christianity is going to intersect with culture in the harshest way is when it comes into contact with politics. The political system does not like Jesus. 
Because the political system likes its own power. And we see that same thing happen in the Gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 6th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. King Herod heard about this. For Jesus' name had become well known. That's what um, uh, heard about what the Gospel reading was about last week. This is the next section. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that's why miraculous powers are, work, are at work in him. And others said, he's Elijah. And still others, so there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, Elijah would show up first to prepare the way. And others still claimed, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she wasn't able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. And at once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with order to bring, orders to bring John's head. And the man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, if you could look at Ephesians 1 in your, um, well, either in the Bible, the Pew Bible in front of you, or in the bulletin, we're going to walk our way through it. I, when I was a kid, um, in the churches that I grew up in, people marked in their Bibles a lot. I know that some of you do that too, but I, I can't ever do that. I can't write in, I can't write in books. I'm just like psychologically unable to uh, do bad things to books. But when I was a kid, we'd be, uh, somebody would be preaching and they would say things like, Hey, in your Bible, circle that word for. It's going to be important. And then, you know, everybody around me, I would see them circle the word for in their Bible. And then I would think like a year from now, you're going to look at that text and that word for is going to be circled. And you're going to be like, what in the world was I circling that word for? But I'm going to ask you to do that now, not in your Bibles, because that would actually be wrong. It would be a crime against books. But if you could do me a favor, and in your uh, bulletin, you don't have, for those of you who take notes, I'm not telling everybody to do that. For those of you who take notes in your bulletin, do me a favor. This will help you out. I want, to, I want you to circle three phrases. One is, to the praise of His glorious grace at the beginning of verse 6. If you can circle that. And then if you could also circle in verse 12, for the praise of His glory. And then in verse 14, circle to the praise of his glory. So you see those three phrases, they're all, I mean, they're all basically saying the same thing. To the praise of his glorious grace, for the praise of his glory, and to the praise of his glory. Now, wh why are these three sentences important? It's because 
um, they serve as sort of uh, section headings for Paul. He's going. He's got three sections in here, and at the end of each of these three sections, he's going to say, to the praise of his glorious grace, or for the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, something like that, to say this is the end of the section. Now, what does that mean, to the praise of his glorious grace? It means that what he's talking about here, he's talking about what he wants us to believe and know is he wants us to believe and know it for the purpose that we praise his glory. What he's doing here is so that he gets glory. Right? The, the things that God does for us, are they for our benefit because he loves us? Yes, this is absolutely the truth. We're going to see that this morning. But there's an ultimate cause behind the things that God does. And the ultimate cause is that he wants to give himself glory. He wants to make much of himself. Now, for you and I, that's offensive because that would be, like if I wanted you, if I said do things to the praise of my glory, if I said to you guys, um, you know, magnify the name of Aaron together and let's exalt his holy name together, you would be unjustly so like totally aghast and, totally, and just walk out of here. But God gets to say those sorts of things and it's completely right for him to say these sort of things because he actually is God. It's the only way that the world works right is if we are making much of him, boasting about him, praising him and glorifying him. So what he's telling us this morning is for his own glory. That's sort of a side point because I do want to break down what exactly he is telling us to do. Now, what's interesting to me is that these three points each coincide with one of the persons of the Trinity. The first section of verses has to do with what God the Father is doing. The middle section of the verses in between the, the, you know, to the praise of his glory for the praise of his glory have to do with what God the Son is doing. And the very last section of verses has to do with the Holy Spirit. So Paul is hitting us right at the beginning of Ephesians. Paul is hitting us with Trinitarian theology. And it's not just abstract like, here's the Trinity. It's true. You should believe in it. It's what is the Trinity? Why do Christians believe in the Trinity? There's actually a reason for the Trinity. The Trinity is actually doing things. Now the Trinity is doing way more than what Ephesians, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1 doesn't tell the whole story, but Ephesians 1 tells us a little bit about what the Trinity's doing. Okay, so let's look at this first section, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now he's going to explain what the spiritual blessings are. Verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. So there's two words there. God the, God the Father chose you to belong to him. God the Father predestined you from before the creation of the world, before the world was even created. God the Father chose you to belong to him right now. You are not a Christian because you decided to follow Jesus. Although if you are a Christian, at some point you have decided to follow Jesus, but you've only decided to follow Jesus because at some prior point, God the Father decided that you were going to follow Jesus, chose you, and pulled you to himself. This is the doctrine of election. Now, there's all kinds of questions that we can ask here. Like, so why didn't God choose other people? Why didn't God choose people who who, who don't believe? The Bible is concerned with these questions as well. It comes up all the time, all right? It comes up in the book of Job. It comes up in Genesis chapter 3. It comes up in Romans chapter 9, where Paul says, how can God find fault with people that he didn't elect to be his own children. I, I, if you want to discuss these questions, they're super important, by the way. I'm not blowing them off. I just don't feel like talking about them here because there's something else I want to do. If you come to adult Bible study and you want to talk about them right after this, you're more than welcome. We can talk about them there. But right now, I don't want to ignore all these important questions. But I want to, what I want to say is, is that by focusing on these questions, 
you could miss Paul's larger point. And that is, God chose you. You. The person who looks looks themselves in the mirror every morning and thinks, I don't really care for that person. God chose you to belong to him. And I want you to feel the weight of that. We all know what it's not like, what it's like to not be chosen. I was telling Harry uh, a couple nights ago, I was telling him about, uh, when, when I was in elementary school, I was never chosen first to be on anybody's sports team. Always last. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, I, I'm not going to expect people in fourth grade to choose the worst soccer player to be on their team just to be nice or to make a theological point about grace or anything like that. You choose the best players because you want to win at recess, right? But even as I was talking to him, I was remembering the feeling of not being chosen, of being the last one, of knowing that the only reason I'm on this team is because they ran out of people. And it would be bad form to say, nobody chooses you. Go sit down until recess is over. But remember the feeling, what it's like to be chosen. This, this is actually, th- think back, or like if you're like in the first stages of a, re- of a relationship right now, think about it. For those of you who've been married for a while, think back to what it was like. Think back to the thrill of first dating. Remember this, this is true. Part of that thrill, a big part of that thrill is the sense of being chosen. The sense that somebody else wants me. Look, I, so I didn't talk to Angela before saying this, and I should have. She's hiding behind Quinn's head, so I, I won't see her face. And uh, I, usually, I usually try and talk to people before I say things about them. But when we were at college, there was two guys who really, really liked Angela. And uh, one of them was like Mr. Like, spectacularly Handsome. His name was Todd, and like super chiseled jaw. He looked like a movie star, and I'm not just saying that. And then there was another guy who also liked her name, Brendan, who is absolutely brilliant. I mean, uh, he's, he's a medical doctor today, super well-respected. And she chose me. I was neither of those things. I was ugly, and I was an English major, which is like the worst prospects for financial security ever. <laughs> Right. That I still remember thinking in that moment. Now it, it slips away from you. You start to take it for granted. But I remember thinking, like, that's unbelievable. Like, why me? That's the kind of theological question you can ask. Why me and why not somebody else? But don't let it get in the way of like the pure, brilliant relief, comfort, satisfaction security of knowing that God loves you and has chosen you to belong to him. Why has he chosen you? Here's the best thing that we have in terms of an answer. Look at the end of verse five. He did this in accordance with his pleasure and with his will. He chose you for his pleasure and his will. And that means pleasure means because he likes you. He loves you. Deuteronomy 7, 7, right? Uh, uh, Moses says to the people of Israel, so the people of Israel have the same question a lot of us have. Why us? Why not choose Greece? They're smart. Why not choose Egypt? They're rich and powerful. Why did you choose this little tiny minority ethnic slave group? And the only answer in Deuteronomy 7.7 is, is God chose you because God loves you and wants you. 
God loves you and wants you. That's what it is. His pleasure and his will. He likes you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And so he chose you to be in that relationship. Feel the emotion of that. Okay. Second thing, God the Son redeems us. So moving on here. He predest, verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. There's that section footer. Now we're going to move into the section on Jesus, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, that's Jesus. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's a lot there. We're not going to talk about all of it, but let's talk about verses 6 and 7 first, and then we'll talk about ver- uh, verses 6 through 8, and then we'll talk about verses 9 and 10. Redemption. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. What does that mean? Redemption is pawn shop language. You hawk something at the pawn shop because you need a little cash. You go back later and you redeem it. You buy it back. It's yours. It belongs to you. But you go and you give money to get it back for yourself. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament writers talk about redemption, they most frequently are talking about slavery. For instance, at the beginning of Exodus 20, God has redeemed his people, Israel, out of slavery. The people of Israel are slaves. But they really belong to the Creator, God. What does God do to get them out of slavery? He goes and he pays the price to buy them out of slavery. Now here the image is not slavery. Did you guys see what the image is? we got to kind of go back up to verse 6. The image is, I'm sorry, verse 5. The image is adoption. God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. God came to the orphanage where you were at. You were outsiders. You were disenfranchised. You were not connected to God. And God comes to the orphanage and pays the price to make you his own children. And so you can see how this is connected to that choosing thing, right? So so those of you who have adopted kids, you know the power of this. You choose somebody, and then all of a sudden, they belong to you, and you belong to them in the most intimate way. They are equivalent to your biological children. This is what God has, this is the way he has chosen us. This is the way he has made us his, is by adopting us into his family and making us the equivalent of his child, Jesus. And this is the second question, right? Is How does this work? It works, for Paul, it works in Jesus. There's in Jesus language all through here. In Jesus, he redeemed us. Um, let's look down at um, verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according with the riches of God's grace. In Jesus, you get adopted. When God looks at you, he sees you in Jesus. He sees you as the equivalent of his son, Jesus. All right. Somebody was talking. I was talking to somebody who, let me see if they're here this morning. I was talking with somebody recently about how St. James is a great church for people who have babies. Like, because you can bring your babies here and cry and nobody really cares. Uh, uh, everybody just kind of is like, okay, that's fine. In other churches, this person was telling me the church they came from, if your child cries instantly, like an on cue, every, all the kids are crying here. Thanks, guys. It's a good illustration. And um, at this church they came from, if your child starts crying instantly, people turn around and they kind of look at you like, what the, get yourself out of here. You know, I want to hear the sermon. 
I'm trying to be a Christian here. Shut the kid up. And this person was telling me this. The difference is, he says, is like at a place where you either know everybody or you feel like everybody's super knowable, like we're all on the same page. You don't ever feel like that. You only ever feel like somebody's kids crying is annoying if you don't know them. Think about this. Like your closest friends. Think about what, you know, your closest friends who have, who have uh, little children or whenever you were younger and your closest friends had little kids. Like other, other people's kids might annoy you like in the restaurant or in the worship service or something like that. But when your friend's kids cry, we're all super understanding. Why is that? Because we know them. It's not because all of a sudden we're like super tolerant and babies don't annoy you. But when you know somebody, you accept their children as part, part of you. Like I, I try to love all kids in the world equally, right? But actually, I love my kids' friends more than I love kids that I don't really know that well. Because they're important to my kids, and that means that they're important to me. Let's give you another quick example. My parents, this is the truth. I'm going to bring Angela up a lot in this sermon, I guess. My parents, and this has always been the case ever since we were dating, my parents, and if they're honest, they'll tell you this is true, like Angela more than they like me. Why, so why is this, why is this that, and, and I know it's not always the case, it is a broken situation when it is not the case. Why is it that we love our sons and daughters-in-law so much? Is because we see them, my parents see Angela in me. Because of her connection to me, they accept her as their own daughter, as a part of their family. This is what God the Father does for me and you. You guys, by faith, if you are connected to Jesus, God sees you as the same exact way as he sees Jesus. He sees you as completely holy, as perfect and without blemish. He sees you as completely lovable, as completely worthy of his affection. This is You are not a charity case. He loves you because you are completely lovable in Jesus Christ. He wants you because you're completely wantable in Jesus Christ. He gets pleasure out of you because you are completely pleasurable to him in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, you have, in Jesus, you have been redeemed to God the Father. That's the second thing. Now let's talk about the Holy Spirit. We get to that section there at the end of verse, uh, where is it at? At the end of verse, um, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 12, where, um, it says, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Actually, before going to the Holy Spirit, let me point out one thing to you really quickly. Verses 9 and 10 tell us why you were saved. The, 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 the motive behind it is God's love for you, God's desire to choose you and know you. But what's the ultimate purpose? The ultimate purpose is in 9 and 10. Read this along with me. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. What is the mystery of his will? To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Here it is. Here's God's ultimate plan. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Why has God redeemed and saved you? To get you out of hell when you die? No, the Bible hardly ever talks about that. To take you to heaven when you die? No, the Bible hardly ever talks about that. All those things are true, but only in a sort of ancillary, tertiary manner. The reason why God saved you is because he wants to rule and reign over every single little thing in the universe under Jesus Christ. That's what verse 10 says. And you are his starting point. You are the beginning point of this process. Him choosing you is stage one in him choosing everything. In him redeeming all of creation back to himself. Okay, let's move on to the Holy Spirit. Verses um, uh, 13 to 14. So we end up in verse 12, for the praise of his glory. Now let's do the Holy Spirit. And you also were included in Christ 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you guys heard the gospel, you believed it, and now you have been included in Christ. Now, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit. Check out this language. This is uh, uh, economic language here. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is a bunch of different things in Scripture. But what the Holy Spirit is right here is a down payment. God has promised you everything. You are the heirs of the world. The down payment of that is the Holy Spirit. The, in, in British economic terms, the, the, the deposit on that promise is the cash payment up front of the Holy Spirit. You guys have the Holy Spirit? That's a guarantee that you will, you will someday rule over all things. It's a guarantee that you belong to God and He will not abandon you. It's just like you put a down payment on a house. It's a guarantee that I'm into this financial transaction. I promise you that I will be faithful to these loan payments. I promise you that I'm going to accept this house as payment. And this cash down payment is a guarantee that I'm going to be faithful to this promise. The Holy Spirit is God's guarantee to you that He is going to be faithful to to, to this promise. It is a seal. Uh, It is somewhat similar on a lower level. Uh, to the wedding ring that I wear. Do you guys, have, do you guys know why you wear a, a wedding ring, right? Think in your head real quick. Why is it that you, those of you who are married, of course, why is it that you wear a wedding ring? Do you wear a wedding ring as a sign? Do I wear a wedding ring as a sign that I'm committed to Angela? No. I wear this wedding ring as a sign that Angela is committed to me. It's Angela's sign. It's not my choice to put this wedding ring on in the morning. Angela, at one point in the past, put this ring, put this ring on my finger and said, with this ring, I, you wed. I didn't say, give me the ring. I agree. Let's do this. She put it on my finger and said, I am committing myself to you. I have no right to take this off. It is the sign and seal of Angela's faithfulness to me. It is the deposit that all of Angela belongs to me. You take something that's valuable, it's gold. And I wear this on my ring finger, not as a sign of my faithfulness to her, but as a commitment from her to me that she belongs to me, that she has made this promise to me. This is almost exactly what the Holy Spirit is. It is God's promise that he has chosen you, that he has redeemed you, that he's adopted you, that you belong to him, and it will always be that case. It will always be that way. This is what God is doing. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing. God the Father has chosen you to belong to him. God the Son has redeemed you and adopted you in Himself to belong to Him. God the Holy Spirit has sealed you so that you know forever God is committed to me. It's what the Holy, it's what the, the Trinity is doing. All of God for all of you. Amen.